prayed. So I'm going to read the first section and then we'll dig in. So, and the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and Egypt and on Egypt. Afterwards, he will let you go from here. And when he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So at this point, all nine plagues are done. And this last plague, this 10th one is treated, and you can see just by this intro to chapter 11, it's treated very separate from the other nine plagues. The other nine plagues were in sets of three. In each set of three, Pharaoh got a warning. Uh, in each set of three, there was a plague that came without announcement. It was a surprise. Here's another one. Um, and there were some differences. The earlier plagues were inconveniences. The later plagues did damage to the crops, to all these things we idolize. Um, all nine of those plagues tackled every single one of, of the Egyptian gods. But what's interesting is it attacked in any pantheistic or polytheistic religion, it tackled every one of the gods. So if you look at, took the Greek pantheon, the nine plagues dealt with all, all of the Greek pantheon. If you took the Roman set of gods or the Norse set of gods or any of them, the Hindu gods, you could take any one of them, put them on a list, go through the nine plagues and cross them off as you have a plague and it would address it. God was introducing himself. And I thought that was such a huge idea that the whole point of this from the very beginning, God said that he's going to introduce himself and say hello. So it's kind of like in Genesis, we get this account of how it all started, the beginnings. And in, in Exodus, it's like, let me introduce myself to you. And these introductions are ones that, that show God's power in pretty amazing ways. They're also paralleled by miracles that Jesus did and I think what some of the disciples were doing when they wrote their Gospels was they were showing the power of God through Jesus by doing the different things. Here he deals with wine, um, well, water turning into wine instead of blood, right? And here he's dealing with the oceans and storms. And here's he's dealing with food and producing food. Um, where these plagues are destructive, Jesus was constructive in his miracles. And there's parallels that go all through there, which is kind of neat. The primary sin from Exodus 10.3, what we did last week, primary sin that God's dealing with is pride. Pride that we as humans can make things up that are more exciting than God. And I think that God kind of let history play out a little bit so that that happens. So Pharaoh's life is what uh, um, is what he's fighting for, or what he's asking for. Pharaoh thinks that he's more important than God. And without God's blessing, we see all the results through the plagues. We see all the things that if what you want is to live on your own, well, okay, there's going to be stuff that gets more and more inconvenient. There's going to be blood on your hands. There's going to be gross stuff in your life, like frogs. There's going to be the corruption of sin, which actually makes you dirty and make it so that you can't even go into the presence of holiness. In the end, those later plagues, the curse of sin in your life, Pharaoh, is actually going to make it so that there's destruction in your life. You're going to hurt the people around you. You're actually going to have things that happen in your life that go dark or wrong. And in the end, there's death, and that's the last plague. At the end of that path of serving yourself with your own pride and whatnot, the end of it is you're going to die. And this last plague, if you're kind of looking at it through that lens, I think I've given you like 10 lenses for the plagues now, and I'm kind of like picking out like which week do I introduce which one. But one of the lenses is that each of the plagues represents a consequence of sin. And that when you don't deal with those things in your life, they get worse and they get worse, and eventually they lead to 
destruction, hail and brimstone, and, and they lead to darkness where you're just blinded. And throughout the Bible, there's references to just being blind. And the last plague, the ninth plague, is this blindness, this darkness that you can feel or touch. That's where we picked up. So in verse 1, it says, the Lord says to Moses, I'll bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. So basically God's saying, okay, Moses, it's time we're going to wrap this up. Starting at Exodus 4, 21 through 23, God said everything that was going to happen, and now we're wrapping it up. God's pointing out everything I said that was going to happen to you back in Exodus 4, it's now happening, and we're coming to the end of this. In other words, the Lord's wrapping up his introductions. The Lord said, in the Hebrew is a root word, um, it could be read the Lord had said, because it's kind of in the past tense, but again, it's I know Zach enjoys this, and I do too. It's a timelessness. God had said this to Moses, but he's also saying it to Moses. It feels confusing, but if you look at the end of chapter 10, it reads like an ending. And if you look at the beginning of chapter 12, the language is put in the tense of a new beginning. In other words, chapter 11 is this odd chapter in between the two. It's a transitional chapter. So the nine plagues are done. And now we see this thing where it's kind of moving in between. There's also a chronological problem between 10, 11, and 12. It seems like God has a conversation with Moses, and then he goes and does nine. Remember, he, he said, this is the last you'll see my face to Pharaoh. But apparently there was more to that conversation with Pharaoh. But the way the Bible sets it up, the Bible's not trying to be chronological. It's trying to say these plagues are one unit of things, and then there's this other unit of things. And it comes out in the tenses, if you want to do a more deep Bible study on that, it's a little interesting, um, but we're going to see a conversation here that sits partway between verses 23 and 24 of Exodus 10. So you could almost read Exodus 10, stop at verse 23, read chapter 11, and then pick up again at verse 24 and chronologically it moves forward. Does that make sense to everybody? It didn't to me. I had to read that like three times, and then I had to go back and read tap chapter 10 and come back and forth. And then I thought I was going to do that tonight, and then I thought, no, that's just a lot of investment of time <laughs> on something that's like a minor curiosity. The point of it is God's not trying to be chronological. He's trying to say, this is what I was trying to say with my nine plagues. I'm doing introductions. I am the all-powerful creator God that you forgot about from Genesis, right? As a, as a world, you've forgotten that I'm here. And now he's trying to move forward and say, I am the God that will bring judgment. There will be a time when there has to be this horrible consequence. So it gets pretty dark today because not only are we going to kill all the firstborn children of Egypt, we're going to talk about killing Fluffy the sheep that lives in your home. So this is not necessarily a grace thing, but it's also the birthday of the nation of Israel. This is where it all begins. This becomes the most important holiday of who they are because the day they were brought out of Israel becomes the earmark of the rest of the Old Testament. This is the starting point of all of that. It's almost like the beginning of, of, of the second set of trilogy for Star Wars. Like, this is where it all... We've seen the world start. We've seen it begin. We've seen the, the patriarchs and all that sort of thing. We know that Israel kind of had to birth in, in, in Egypt for 430 years, but now they're about to start. It's all about to begin. So there's this transition point here. One more plague. So there's nine plagues plus one. In the phraseology. So, um, also another thing to point out about this last plague before I go to verse two: um, all the other plagues aren't celebrated by by Israel. Those aren't things that they don't have like a locust day or anything like that, you know. And so the the the, the nine days of Christmas or anything like that, they only really celebrate this last one. This Passover is the one 
that they make into a holiday. And, and there's reasons for that, which we're going to see in this chapter. So afterwards, he will let you go from here. Pharaoh will let the Israelites go. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Which, by the way, fulfills the promise, because initially Pharaoh wasn't letting them go, and Moses is probably thinking, what do you mean they're going to kick us out? Like, they're refusing to let us leave. But here we are, they're going to kick them out. Speak now in the hearing of the people. So instead of showing up at Pharaoh's bathtub in the morning, he's going to talk to all the people. Well, how does he do that, right? And let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman from her neighbor articles of silver and articles of gold. Most historians believe there's about 5 million people living in this Egypt area at this point in time. Probably a million to 2 million of them are Israelites. So the population of the children of Israel have grown significantly in this area. Some historians say there was more like 10 million Egyptians. Either way you read it, we're talking about a percentage of their population that's about to cut loose, right? So how do you talk to that many people without CNN or Fox News or something like that? And the answer is, at the very beginning, remember Moses brought all the elders of Israel together? And then the job of those elders was to go out to each of their tribes and communicate these things um, with fidelity. So they had to memorize what Moses said, just like God's asking Moses to memorize what he says. So the track record of like getting every word right was part of this culture. So when they did it that way, they would. Articles of silver and articles of gold, that's an odd thing. They're going to go knocking on doors saying, give me your jewelry. Most of the time when people do that, you shut the door in their face. But at this point, that's not going to be what happens. And we'll see that as we go through here. So at this point with all these plagues, and remember their crops were hit, their spelt is gone, all of these good things that they had. I know you like spelt now, don't you? Um, <laughs> They're looking to starve to death. They're not going to make it through the year. So what good is your silver and what good is your gold when you're going to pretty much starve to death? So you go to your neighbor's house because if you're going to pick up everything you leave and all you have is, you know, your bread that isn't even risen with the leaven yet, you're leaving a lot of stuff back in that house. So you kind of go to your neighbor's saying, we're taking off. You can pretty much have all the food if you want to, but we need some silver. We're supposed to ask for your silver and gold. Um, so... God's saying they're going to willingly give you all their riches and you're going to pillage them like soldiers coming through a town. And that's going to be what happens too. So why would God do this? Why would he have them go ask for silver and gold? I thought silver and gold didn't matter. In fact, we can't serve with God and man. Why does this man and why does this matter? First of all, it matters in this way, in large part because most of that silver and gold is in the hands of the Egyptian because they've been unfairly treating the Egyptian slaves for so long or the Israelite slaves for so long. So if you look in Deuteronomy 15, it's actually written into the law that when you release an employee or a slave, because back then employees were slaves, it's the same thing. They hadn't abused slavery like they did today. But when someone's done in your service and they're going to leave you, you're supposed to pay them. You're supposed to pay them a large amount of money. So in Hebrews 15 verse 12, it says, if a fellow Hebrew man or woman sells himself to you and serves you for six years, in the seventh year, you have to set them free. When you release them, don't send them away empty-handed. You're to furnish him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, and from your wine press. Well, if all of those things are destroyed, silver and gold become a payment process for these slaves. They've actually worked for this. You shall give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in the land of Egypt, and the Lord God redeemed you. That's why I'm giving you this command today. In other words, the Lord says, remember when you were slaves and you got let go and you were paid? You're going to do the same thing for all your slaves. There's a different law in the land of Israel that's a little more humane. So they've earned that gold. And they don't have to go as beggars. Uh, the language in this verse is that they go, op 
middle of the day. They're not sneaking up or, you know, could you please give me your silver or gold? They're going in as though conquerors or winners would claim their spoils. I'm here to collect my silver and gold from your house is the tone of that language. The Egyptians then are happy to give away their money because it's not worth much, right? Um, also, I had to, because it's coming from Egypt, this is the first time in history we see e-commerce. No? So we've gone from the Israelites being mistreated to being paid generously by the Egyptians. All that conversions happen not because Moses is some amazing guy, but because God has introduced himself. It's recorded, and I'm going to quote from the Ippur Papyrus a lot tonight. The Ippur Papyrus is in the, um, oh, I think it's in Holland. It's in a museum in Holland, and it's an Egyptian text that we have from this period where the Egyptians wrote about this period of time. Um, and they wrote about the, there's a passage in there that talks about gold and lapis lazuli, silver and malachite, carnelian and bronze are all fastened on the neck of our female slaves. So the Egyptians write about this period of time where they put all their wealth on their slaves and say, take it, you can have it all. You can, we just want you out of here because we don't want darkness. We don't want all these bad things happening. You can just go. Um, so what's gone from hopeless is now hopeful for the Israelites. They're ready to serve. They're ready to do what God has. Um, and for anybody who obeys his word, there's blessings to be had. So the silver and gold is later going to get smelted down and they make a golden calf out of it, you remember? So that's all Egyptian gold. And then they reform that golden calf. They melt that down, and then it gets made into the temple articles for the tabernacle and then for the, the temple. So this gold will stay in the, in the nation of Israel for generations to come. But it's all being made, melted down from the idols of this world. I love the fact, I love when I see churches that are like alive and planting and doing stuff, and they're looking for that first building and they like take over a disco or a nightclub or a bar and they convert it into a church. I always think that's a win. It's like territory being taken over. And when you melt down the gold of these little frogs that the women would wear and things like that, I think it's kind of cool that it gets turned into the covering for the Ark of the Covenant at some point, that God converts those things and redeems them in the same way he redeems me. So I think that's just a beautiful image. Um, Anyways, verse 3. And the Lord, I know I'm taking a long time, and I'm still on verse 3. And the Lord gave people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Favor? Well, yeah, because they're not getting touched by these plagues. They must be doing something right. The gods must love them more than us. So they're actually moving from this disfavor to favor. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt. They're elevating Moses up to this platform in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So we're making a clear break from chapter 10 and everything else. There's now two eras in history. This is the birth of a nation, not of slaves. You see the difference in the language? We're not talking about the poor Israelites anymore. We're talking about the Israelites that are claiming the gold and silver and getting ready to move on. Um, the man Moses is not a god, and it reminded me of Acts 14. Remember when they treated Paul and Barnabas like they were gods? You are Zeus and you are Hermes. And their reaction was they rent their clothing and said, no, we're not gods. You don't get it. We're just people. Don't elevate me to that level. I remember at Bethel, my first couple years there, I brought a couple new things to the department. And there would be other faculty there that would say things like, oh, Sean, you're just so great. It's so great to have you. And I kept telling them, like, I'm not that great. 
I'm, I'm not that special. I'm just doing my job. Don't put me up on your pedestal. Because the same token people put godly people up on a pedestal, they'll flip and they'll throw them down into the dungeon, right? It happened to Jesus in three days. Don't put me on a pedestal. I'm not God. And I don't represent God in that kind of way. I just try to live out my faith like a decent, holy guy. And I fail all the time. So I'm just trying to do the best I can, like Catherine would say, right? And that's the thing where Moses is doing this. And, and notice how he phrases that in verse 3. Moreover, Remember, Moses is writing this. Moreover, the man Moses was very great. You see how he gave himself a pronoun? He's just a man. He's not a god, and he's, he's being treated that way by Pharaoh and Pharaoh's servants who used to mimic him. They're now supporting him. Well, look at that flip and that turn. Those people, those servants of Pharaoh that, sh that were mocking him and mimicking him and saying he wasn't important, now suddenly, well, Moses is, is mighty and great and he represents God. But those same servants aren't repenting. They're not turning to God, and there's a difference there. So this is where you would insert the end of chapter 10. There's a talk there. Moses says, I'll never see your face again. So Pharaoh then is not necessarily looking at Moses when he goes in or he's wearing his fancy Pharaoh God mask or something like that. Or Moses and him are having a conversation and they're still in that ninth plague of darkness where they literally can't see each other's face, right? So Pharaoh's getting this whole warning, this whole story, um, but we don't know exactly how that's working out when it comes to them not seeing each other's face. Or you can look at the chronology thing and say, well, oh, this is this is a paragraph to that conversation we didn't have back then because it has to do with going out. Verse 4, then Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt. The only thing I have to say on that is midnight means Pharaoh still has time to stop this last horrible plague from happening. He has time to stop this, and he doesn't. So if it's at midnight, it means that He's got some, he could just say, why don't you just all take off? And this, and I think this plague would have been avoided. But his heart's hardened. God's helped to harden it. Um, and the Lord says, I will go out in the midst of it. Um, notice he's not having Moses or Aaron do anything on this one. In other words, if God's going to execute people, he does it himself. He doesn't involve Moses or Aaron. Remember on the other ones, they had to touch the water or move a staff or wave a wand or something like that. In this one, they, there's no physical motion. There's no involvement of Moses or Aaron at all. God's going to go out and do this himself. That should terrify Pharaoh, and it doesn't. Um, and all the firstborn of the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant, who's behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. Okay, behind the handmill. All right? Behind the handmill is seen as one, other than being a shepherd, this is one of the lowest forms of work because it's exhausting. And people that ground the wheat and the spelt in the handmill had to lean over it. Imagine leaning over your work for 10 to 12 hours a day. Even as 20-somethings, that's painful work. So the handmill maid was usually young, probably a teenager, probably a female, and they would have to bend over this grist mill, and it was horribly dangerous one misplacement of your hand or your feet and it gets caught in a grinding mill stone that's mm -hmm. probably five to six hundred pounds right so it's really dangerous it's not the work you put your your finest uh um students on or anything like that it's 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 the nasty work and the firstborn of all the animals in other words from the high to low pharaoh even you sits on your throne remember firstborns aren't just children 
I'm a firstborn son, which would mean I'd be going in this. How many other people in the room would be firstborns? So boom, boom, boom. So there is not one household in Egypt that is left without the tragedy of losing somebody. Everyone in Egypt's going to lose somebody they know. Mm-hmm. Every household. It's probably, probably in most households, there's at least two generations. That's two deaths per household. In this era, there's usually three generations. In fact, in most cultures in the world today, there's usually three generations in a house. That means you're going to lose three people. You're going to lose the firstborn in each of those generations. This is a devastating blow. Firstborn status in all generations, if you believe in uh, primogenesis or you believe firstborn has some special status, which Egyptian society did, this is a devastating blow. This is taking out all of your leadership, all of the people with experience in leadership, because you train your firstborn to take over the family business. So not only are you losing grandpa and dad who've been running the business for a while, you're also losing that firstborn son. If there's no sons in the household, the firstborn daughter would have been trained accordingly in most societies, even today. So there's daughters that are going to get killed in this too. For each death then, whole families are represented. Um, That one death means the rest of the family can live. And this is an important kind of theological concept. The idea of one firstborn son being taken for the family means the family has paid their price. I always wondered how could Jesus' death account for me? Like, I don't get that connection because there's millions of people that call on the name of Jesus. Why does his death somehow account for my sin? And it's always been that way. You can have something that is death and that whole community's paid a price. And individuals in America are super important. Family units and households were important during these generations and most cultures. So you're not an individual. You're part of a family. You're part of a community. And when you lose something as a community, the whole community loses together and you've all paid a price when you lose something. So now this is going to be across a whole nation. And in verse 6, they're trying to tell us the pain this is going to cause. Then there shall be a a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. I hope never again. I would never want to hear this kind of pain, right? Even in this apartment building, you can hear down the hallway people in their apartments when they get too loud. Imagine how loud it would get if in every apartment there's somebody that died and it's all at the same time. This would just be the death and the pain that this would cause would be horrible. So the death and pain the Jews got to endure for the last 40 years, they're killing off their kids, right? Egypt's going to get it. There's a perfect justice here. Egypt's going to pay the price on all the killing that they've done by aborting or killing babies as they come out of the womb. Remember, that's what started this whole thing, right? So they're going to get a taste of their own medicine again. God matches justly, and he mirrors the wrongs of the Egyptians with each of the plagues. And this one is painful, but it's an eye for an eye kind of justice. They've been offered a chance to not have this happen. And and I think on this plague alone, there's going to be a way an Egyptian can avoid the consequence of death. And that's going to be kind of, I think, where you see mercy. But if you ignore it you're going to there's going to be a justice there ezekiel 39:10 says and they shall spoil those that spoiled them and rob those that robbed them saith the lord god and that's exactly what's happening here egyptians robbed the israelites they're going to go and take all that wealth back the egyptians killed the israelites god's going to bring that justice we as humans it's hard for us to presume we know something about justice and how god's going to do this um 
and God's uh, not making it easier for us with these verses. Verse 7, But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue <laughs> against a man or beast, that you may know that God does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. Dogs not moving their tongues at night, that's a miracle. It's an amazing miracle. And in most of these cities, they didn't have soundproof walls and things like that. Probably through most nights, you could hear dogs barking out in the streets. It's just what dogs do. Dogs do it incessantly. They never stop. When they take to barking, they bark the whole time. But in this night, the dogs are going to keep silent. And if you think about that, and you know dogs at all, that's a, this is kind of like that off-sided miracle. One miracle is there's going to be this great judgment of, of death that sweeps through Egypt. And at the same time the dogs are going to be quiet, which is like this gentle side miracle, but it's an amazing thing that's about to happen. Why does that happen? So that you know the Lord. We're getting introductions here. The whole reason this is going to happen is that he wanted the world to know that Israel was special to him. Why Israel? A bunch of slaves. They're not even their own country because they're going to represent God throughout human history. In fact, in human history, there's going to be three attempts to wipe them out, and they're still here. They're hanging out and doing their thing and making the news and whatnot. So they're still around. So the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. This is a final introduction piece that God's going to divide, and he'll make a distinction. Look at Matthew 3, if you want to flip there. It's kind of in the middle of your Bible. Well, Psalms is in the middle, but two-thirds of the way through the Bible. I want to make this point about God dividing and making a distinction because it's a consistent biblical message and it's one that's really tough for us right now in America, I think, to absorb. Um, Matthew 3, verse 11, John the Baptist, Messiah's coming up and uh, he's kind of talking about Messiah, that Messiah's coming, and he will baptize you, the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Holy Spirit or fire, take your pick. His winnowing fork, the thing that divides, is in the hand and it's clear and his threshing floor is to gather the wheat from the barn but he will burn up the chaff with an unquenchable fire the winnowing fork kind of pick the wheat up and you smack it against the concrete and as you smack it and smack it eventually the thing on the outside of the the grain will fall off and it's really lightweight so you can kind of sweep the grain up and all these little wispy chaff things just get blown away in the wind or you can light them up in the fire and get rid of them that way and they they just burn really quick at that time, Jesus showed up. That's the moment when Jesus shows up is when John the Baptist is saying that. The Messiah is going to show up. He's going to divide all the people out. There's going to be wheat and there's going to be chaff. And Jesus shows up on the scene. And that's the moment. And it kind of sticks with this. So God's combined water and fire. And there's darkness and there's light. And he's gathering his children. And there's death for the other people. There's Israel. There's Egypt. There's those that follow God. And there's those that don't. Right? This, according to Charles Spurgeon, is an eternal distinction of humanity, that there will be those who follow God and those who don't. I don't know about you, but for me, that terrifies me. Like, how do I know I'm following God enough? How do I do more of that God thing? And how do I make that happen in my life? And I'm thinking, I just want to do that really well. So occasionally I'll ask stuff. I'm like, how am I doing? Like, <laughs> uh, you think I'm going to heaven? You know, and, and I know we should have surety in our salvation, and that has always made me feel guilty as I grew up Baptist. Like, you should be confident in your salvation. I'm like, I don't know if I'm confident because I'm really selfish. 
and I'm even selfish about wanting God in my life more. Like, God, give me more of your time, and it feels selfish. Um, but I guess, you know, in the Bible, that's okay to be selfish, to want more of God in your life. But it just, it's one of those things where, boy, when that dividing fork comes, the only thing I have to lean on is something where I got to just have faith that I am covered in the blood. That's where we're going for the rest of the night, so I want to keep going. And all of these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. You see how this kind of is in the middle of chapter 10? And the great anger was good. You're never going to see my face again. So come down and bow down to me. So the people of Israel, Moses is saying to Pharaoh, your people are going to bow down to us. They're going to hand us all their wealth and we're going to go out. You think you're amazing, Pharaoh, but God is going to confound you with a lowly servant. So there, so again, this is going to be, you know, <laughs> all of your people will tell us to leave. Why? Because Pharaoh is hiding under his blanket or he's terrified or He's not even doing his job as leader anymore. So it's going to be Pharaoh's servants that tell them, get out of here, go. Pharaoh will be utterly crippled in his leadership. Get out, will go out, and went out. Uh, that's the word yatza three times, but in the English we do it different. You see that? After that, I will go out. They'll say, get out. Then he went out. It's yatza, yatza, yatza. And I just like when I see that in the Hebrew. The other piece is the yatza, yatza, yatza has slightly different little ticks and, and tip tiddles, whatever they call them in the Hebrew, right? Is that what it is? Sure. Diddle or something? Jot or tittle. Have you ever heard that phrase? That's from writing Hebrew, right? There's jots and there's, anyways. <laughs> yata, 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 three times. Guess what those three times are? The differences are present tense, future tense, and past tense. They have said get out, right? Bowed on to me saying get out. That's in the past tense. And after that, I will go out in the future tense. And then he went out from Pharaoh in anger. Past, present, future. One, two, three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's written throughout the whole Bible. You see those sets of three all over. So there's a departure here in sentence, but this is a complete departure. This is a departure that has happened, it is happening, and it will happen. And it, when you think of it will happening, there's going to be a point where God's people leave the world. And we are journeying here. We are not here permanently. This is not our home, and that theme's consistent throughout the rest of the Bible. Moses predicts that Pharaoh's servants will tell him to get out. God's promise in that will hold true, and he leaves in a great anger here. So that's interesting. Moses leaves in a great anger. Isn't it sin to be angry? But there's two kinds of anger, and this anger is a very appropriate anger for Moses because Pharaoh is choosing death for his people, and it is right for a godly person to be angry when somebody does that. You are so prideful. You're willing to let people get hurt for your pride. That's horrible. That's evil. Don't do that, Pharaoh. So there's corally a heated or burning, fuming anger. So the great anger is two Hebrew words. Kori is this heated kind of fuming anger, the kind of anger you can't do anything about when you see something wrong. When you see somebody treated unjustly and you can't fix it, that's the first word that's used for great anger. So it's a fuming kind of anger. And then the word off, which <laughs> off, sometimes the Hebrew letters are actually meant, the pronunciation of them has meaning. Like the letter F, H means breath, right? So they are, so off is this flaring, nose flaring kind of anger that you get. So it's the seething, quiet, burning anger 
that you just can't do anything about and it makes you feel weak, but it's also the flaring nose face anger that you can't see, uh, anger you can see or anger you can hear because off means, or it connotes the breath or a huffing or a snorting. So Moses left with a burning snorting anger is, is, a, is a great translation of that. And when God put an H, another use of this H, by the way, when you put H into things, Notice that, and I should have talked about this with Abraham and Sarah. Remember when they got their new names? Essentially, their new names were God put H in the middle of each. It was Abram, now it's Abraham. It was Sarai, now it's Sarah. And he put an H in their names. He put a breath of life into their names. In other words, he stuck that right in there. This kind of anger with that kind of H put in, given how it's been used in Genesis and whatnot, the anger he has is a holy anger that actually has a breath of God with the letter H put right in the middle of it. Does that make sense? He's angry and representing God in his anger. Psalms 4, 3 through 4 says, Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call on him. Be angry, yet don't sin. On your bed, search your heart and be still. Selah. There's a kind of anger that we have as Christians when we see stuff that's wrong. And what's going on right now in Exodus is wrong. So when you hear non-Christians say, well, God killed a bunch of people. God's people hated that this was happening. This was horrible. And we see in these verses, if you read them carefully, Moses, the representative of God, is not happy about this last plague. This isn't a good thing. What's about to happen is horrible. And God's going to give his people a way out of it. Verse 9, But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. But is the first word there. When we see the word but, we need to know what the contrary is. What's the contrary? So something happens and there's a but. Moses is showing anger, and that's what just happened. Perhaps his effort to persuade Pharaoh is the but. So he's angry, he's showing that anger to Pharaoh, and he's trying to change his mind. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's not going to heed you. Don't get so angry. This isn't for you to get angry about. He's not going to heed you because my wonders are going to be multiplied in the land of Egypt. It's going to happen, Moses. And people are going to know who I am because of this throughout all of history. So God's instruction was to go to the people, verse 2. He does that. Moses left Pharaoh's presence here in verse 8. It had made me wonder, did Moses not listen to God's instructions? Because if God said, go to the people in verse 2, but right now he's leaving Pharaoh's presence, that's not following God's command to the letter. So maybe the but is because God's gently and gracefully correcting Moses for not doing what he was told to do here. And that's one kind of way to look at this. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Um, That is now the fourth hardening. Uh, The... Pharaoh hardened his own heart six times. I looked into this a little bit more, Danny. And then God did the hardening four times. The last set is a three, a plus one. So God, Moses is being consoled because God is doing this and he's owning and taking responsibility for his actions, which is another way to look at this. So you can read it. You can decide what's going on there yourself. Verse 10, so Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh and the Lord hardened his heart and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Pharaoh did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. All these wonders, another, we're wrapping up the story here in narration mode. 
Uh, we can't say God didn't allow them a chance. He did. We can't say that God didn't show mercy here. He showed mercy multiple times by releasing them from plagues. We can't say that God isn't just because there's been perfect justice in these plagues. So when it comes in terms of introductions, God's done introducing himself as a merciful, chance-giving God that's also going to be just at some point. And he did not let, in the end, Pharaoh didn't get his will done. God got his will done. In fact, if you're keeping score between Pharaoh and God, it's like Pharaoh zero and God ten. So God's winning in all, in every element, in every phase of nature, with men, with beast, with plants, with day, with night, with fire and water falling at the same time. God rules everything completely and totally. So there's nine wonders that are completed and judged. The number nine is that of fruit or birthing. We're about to birth a nation. So, you know, in, in the Jewish tradition, those numbers all have meanings, right? So the nine plagues, it's odd that it's associated with the number nine. You'd think it would be associated with seven, or it would be associated with, you know, 12, the number of government. But it's associated with nine, the number of birthing or giving birth, but it's nine plus one. Um, it's not 10. And if you really look at this chapter, in Sunday school, we always hear the 10 plagues. But when you read through it, we're seeing conclusion in the narration mode here, right? All of these wonders, is a, it's a complete set of nine. So um, other things in, the, in nine, if you, if that idea of giving birth, which is kind of cool, there's nine fruits of the spirit. There's nine gifts of the spirit. There's nine months in a typical birthing process. Uh, we pray for forgiveness in the ninth hour in Acts 3, in, in Acts 10. The humanity's first war had five kings plus four kings, the birth of violent sin, right? God's firstborn will die in the ninth hour, Matthew 27. Genesis 17, Abraham was 99 when God gave him his letter H in his name, and Sarah was 90. So they both were, this was when they were born again or born with a new breath. Jesus will leave the 99 to save the one, and he's going to save a sheep, which is going to be relevant when we get into the next chapter. Um, and this chapter a little bit too. Luke 10, there's 10 plagued lepers, but only nine of them praise God. And those are the ones that were born with a new spirit. So the judgment's complete. God's no longer asking for a few days of worship. At this point, that's not the request. God's completely introduced himself. He's completely shown Pharaoh's pride and willingness to hurt his people. He's completely shown that Moses has a place of respect and authority at this point. It's all flipped, not because of what Moses has done, but because of what God's done. So then we move forward into Exodus 12. I'm only going to cover the first 11 verses, Exodus 12, because if you look at your Bible and see how massive this chapter is, um, I thought it would be a good idea to get, because Exodus 11 is nice and short, so I'm going to slide in another. I'm just going to get the first 11 verses done. Exodus 12 is interesting because now this birth is happening and notice that the first word of Exodus 12 is now. So now that we've closed up the story of the plagues, now we're starting something new and this language is like we're beginning a new part of the story. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt saying, this month shall be your beginning of months and it shall be the first month of the year to you. That's an interesting way to start the story, right? This is going to be where we set our calendars. If any of you want to experiment with this, go ahead and try to tell people that you're going to invent a new calendar and see how that goes. Um, the French tried it. It didn't stick, right? So it, it doesn't always go that way. So this is going to be about Passover. Um, 
I'm going to flip to numbers 9-2, and you may want to like write that in your column, exactly a year past this date. In Numbers 9-2, this is what it says. Let the children of Israel also keep the Passover at its appointed season. In the 14th day of this month at even, you shall keep it in its appointed season according to all the rites and all the ceremonies thereof. Shall you keep it? In Deuteronomy 16, also Ezekiel 45, the law says, Observe the month of Abib, which the Hebrews now call Nisan, and keep the Passover unto the Lord thy God, for in the month of Abib the Lord thy God brought you out of Egypt by night. This is a date that will be very important as we study the Bible over the next few years. This is it. This is the start. The Passover is going to become an eternal reminder of a sacrifice made to the firstborn that gives their life for the nation of Israel. I'm going to say that again. This will be an eternal reminder of a sacrifice made of the firstborn that gives new life and birth to the nation of Israel. Do you see the mirroring to the Christian life there? Like it's, We're going to get a ton of that. It's totally obvious once you look at it. This is why after Jesus rose from the dead, thousands of Jewish people converted to be followers of Jesus Christ. Because this Passover is their Christmas time. They know the story of Passover like we know the birth of Jesus, and we can hear Luke in our head when we think about it, right? Three wise men came out of the east, and, you know, it's a story that gets told every year, all the time at the beginning of the year. But it's an eternal reminder. That reminder never stops. You're going to have a sacrifice made, and it's going to save your skin versus you getting killed. As Genesis is the backdrop for showing how a savior, savior will redeem us from sin, Exodus centers on a new life and how God brings people out of the world and brings them into his kingdom. It's kind of cool. Beginning of months uh, is Rishon, the chief month, the head month. This is kind of weird because the new year for the Jews are actually their seventh month of the year. So when they say first month, it means head or top or primary month. This is the most important month of the year. But the beginning of their year is Rosh Hashanah in month seven. So just so you understand that and don't think, hey, you're all goofed up on that. Um, this is the head of their year, and that's how they kind of treat it. But it's not necessarily the beginning of their year. And that's just an interesting way to do it. So what we're going to see coming up, and this is nice that we're splitting up from week to week too. We're going to see Passover explained to Moses three times. And you'd think God is, or Moses is really thick, but each of the three explanations of Passover is, is different in some really interesting ways. But we got to like put on our scholarly hats and like absorb this um, and kind of hear it as it's going on. So the first time he explains it, he's telling Moses what to do right now, right? So this is what it's going to look like now. Verse three, speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. According to, this, the, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. In other words, you're going to take a lamb and you're going to bring it into your home. Whether or not they have pets allowed at their apartment complex, the lamb's going to come into your home and live with you. I don't know if Jews still do this or not, but I don't think they're sacrificing or something. And I got to talk to my Jewish friends and find out. If the household is too small for the lamb, and there were very small houses, right? If the house is too small for his lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons. According to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. A first year male is full grown, by the way. It's not a kid 
or a baby lamb, a, a year old lamb is full grown. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, all the congregation of Israel. So all the congregation of Israel is uh, the assembly, or it's the first time we see the word congregation, idah in the Hebrew. It means assembly, people, elders. It's also a word you could use called church, right? So it is a congregation of people. Um, and, and in the Greek, that essentially gets translated the same way. So a lamb for the household is the primary focus. And I like this. The Jewish tradition and, and the nation of Israel is based on the household. It's based on the family. It's not based on the individual. And I that is hard for me to get my head around. It's not about me. It's about my family. Um, and we see that even through Jesus' day when the Roman guards, or you saw people and they and their household get saved, right? So when that happens or that, that happens, whole families kind of do that. So the core of the Jewish tradition is not the nation, it's not the civic stuff, it's not the town, it's the family and the household. And the accountability to carry out Passover is on every household, not on cities and villages and counties and um, states and territories. So you take himself a lamb, a lamb would be with that family, it would live there, cared for, and you'd pick a perfect lamb. So not lambs with weird growths on them, right? This is a sweet, cuddly, brown-eyed, gentle lamb that's going to live in your house for a few days. Imagine what this is like for the little kids. Come on, like, if I was going to take away stuffed animals, my 22-year-old son would still get mad at me if I got rid of, if I got rid of Tiggy. Or tiger, or what was tiger's name? Just tiger? Sure. Okay. <laughs> They're still in a box in the attic, because I can't throw away these stuffed animals. What if we brought live Fluffy the lamb into our house? <laughs> this is horrible for the kids, right? The household's too small. Right up front, God makes accommodations for the poor. Look, if you're too poor to do this, it's not about your money. We can accommodate for you on that. We can make this happen. Male of the first yorns, a full-grown adult. This is really important. We're not taking a little baby lamb. We're taking one that's worth something, right? Um, one who's started his ministry already of serving with with wool for the family and milk and all that. Sheep or the goats, again, it, there's this is further confusing for young boys that don't know the difference between lambs and goats. Because you read this and you're like, well, sheep and goats, same thing, doesn't matter. <laughs> Just makes it hard for little Sean's to understand there's actually a difference because it doesn't matter to God, so apparently. Um, as much as possible, your best, the finest from your flock. Later this, it gets abused for money because what happens, and this is part of what gets Jesus angry, the money changers in the temple start, the people, little poor families would bring in their sheep and say, here's the best sheep from our flock. And what would the Pharisees do? Oh, uh, there's a blemish. This hoof has a chip on it. You can't use this one. You got to buy one of our goats, and you got to, and we'll sacrifice it for you. And they started to abuse this, and what they were doing is they were making it so poor people couldn't bring their lambs to the temple. And I think it's part of what made Jesus flip tables. He literally flipped out, right? Because that that is so horrible. That is not what this is about. This isn't about how rich you are. This is about every year doing something and giving something to God. And frankly, I think it's about having that fluffy the lamb exposed to your kids for four days, and then you kill it and eat it. There's something going on here, and I let's, uh, let's suss that out a bit. <laughs> now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. That's the 10th day in verse 3. The four, that's four days this lamb's going to live in your house, mm-hmm. right? You're going to keep it with you. You're going to get to know it. 
it's going to wake you up at two in the morning going, and you're going to be, that's if it's a goat, I guess if it's a sheep, it goes, or something like that. But it's going to wake you up at night. It's going to sleep in your bed, maybe. And maybe it's the kids that are going to do it. This is going to be, you're going to clean it because it's going to be in your house, right? No spots, no dirt. It's going to be washed white as snow to come into that house, right? Because I don't know any mom in the world that would want a dirty, nasty lamb in their house, right? You're going to have to clean up after it for four days. That lamb's not potty trained. It's going to pee in your house. It's going to poop in your house. And you're going to have to clean it up. You're going to have to clean up this mess. And after four days, you're going to get kind of used to the routine. It doesn't take that long to fall in love with a cute little animal with the brown eyes looking at. And sheep aren't hard to get along with. They're peaceful little gentle animals, right? They're prey. They don't go and eat things. They get eaten. And then they wonder what happened to them. The whole of the assembly of the congregation shall kill it at twilight. Twilight's a particular time. It's not the time we think it is. Twilight means between two evenings. There's evening, and then there's evening. And it kind of makes sense to us. There's, we have morning, afternoon, and evening. But we do things in the evening. Danny hosts 10 parties a week in, in the evening. And to the Hebrews, the time between evenings was 3 p.m. It was a very particular part of time of day when that would happen. This is relevant if you watch, what's the name of that thing? The star or whatever? So we have technology today where we can wind back the, the chronology of the heavens. We can go forward and backwards and look at what the stars were doing. There's great research out there, and if you've never seen this video, it'll blow your mind, where they rewound the dial to find Christmas because they want to know what the star looked like, and they found it. And you're like, that happened, really? And out of curiosity, the very end of this video that's all about Christmas and the stars and how they would follow a star, how does that make sense? Then they moved it forward 30 years, looking for another kind of set of signs in the sky. What they found is that there was a, a darkening in the sky that would have happened at exactly three o'clock at when we think Jesus was crucified. If you've never seen the video, it blows your mind. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Uh, and it's explained extremely well. The guy who explains, explains it used to be a lawyer, so he knows how to lay out a case in my language and make it so I can understand it. And he shows you what it all looks like. Right? Twilight is when the lamb gets killed. It's an important time, and it's pointed out right there in the word. So at twilight, this is the time when the head of the household has to kill that lamb. I can't imagine doing this as a dad. Can you imagine your eight-year-old kids going, wait, what are you going to do with Fluffy? Why do we need to kill him? This isn't fair. Fluffy didn't do anything to us. Fluffy's innocent. We all know he's innocent, but I'm going to kill him. And I'm going to kill him because this lamb is going to be the substitution for us. He's going to take the death that we deserve and we're going to put it on Fluffy the lamb. Is there anything fair about that? That's the point. It's not fair at all. The lamb doesn't deserve it. The lamb didn't earn it. But he's going to pay that price and we're going to own that price. Man, why are we doing this? so you can tell your kids about it is what we're going to see in future verses. The whole point of this is to have a conversation with your kids about how other people are going to pay the price for your sin. And you're going to have to own that. You don't get to get away from that. That lamb lives with you for four days. You can't avoid the guilt of killing Fluffy. You killed Fluffy. We all killed Fluffy. And Fluffy's going to save us at the same time. 
and Fluffy doesn't deserve any of it. Can you imagine? I can't even, I don't even like killing bunnies and squirrels, right? They look at you like, what did I do, right? You're like, you, you grew and will be awfully tasty. <laughs> the 10th day, the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem is the 10th day. The lamb walked, came in, they laid out palm branches. It was on the 10th day that he walked into Jerusalem, presented himself to the town, and three days later, he's crucified on a cross. Exactly to the date, to the time. In fact, remember the whole deal was the Jewish people didn't want to do the crucifixion because they're in the middle of Passover. They're not supposed to do that sort of thing, so they hand Jesus over to the Romans, and and they kill him and put him on a cross. It gets even cooler. The comparison's amazing. So Jesus was also rode into Jerusalem and presented himself, got inspected by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Romans. He's inspected by the whole town, the whole nation, the whole assembly, the whole congregation, and he's deemed innocent, but they're going to kill him anyways. What did he do to deserve it? What did Jesus do to have to be that sacrifice for us? And the reality is he hasn't done nothing. It's totally unjust. It's totally not fair, and that's kind of the point. When were the disciples taught all this? The Last Supper was a Passover supper. This is when Jesus introduced this idea to him, and he's saying all this. So they're saying, Lord, this isn't fair. You didn't do anything. You've been perfect, gentle, and all you've done is love us, just like Fluffy, right? And all the disciples would have grown up in this culture. They would have remembered this from when they were kids, and they would have remembered that feeling of, oh, we got to do this again? We're going to kill this lamb again? And eventually you grow up as a Jew and you harden your heart and you're like, I don't want to get to know Fluffy anymore, right? And you grow up with that kind of guilt of, I don't want to get too close to the lamb this year. I remember how much that hurt when I was a kid. The whole assembly is going to do this killing at twilight. Look at the wording at that really carefully, right? This is, we're not household by household. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it as though it's one being. It doesn't say kill them. It says kill the sacrifice. It singular at twilight. That does that's incorrect grammar if you're talking about Passover with a lamb per household. It's absolutely accurate grammar if you're talking about Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sins. I look at that stuff and I'm thinking that's amazing. And then I hear my colleagues say, "Well, there's inaccuracies in the Bible." And I'm like, "That is not accurate. That's perfectly accurate. You just got to know what they're talking about." The kids have all this time to fall in love, and then we do it. And then we kill this lamb, and the whole assembly is responsibility for it. Every man in the, in the, every person in the household doesn't have to do the killing, but every person is responsible for the killing. Every household is there. This is how the later the Levites do it. They do a sacrifice for the whole nation, and it's not necessarily a whole household thing. This is really nice for the queasy. It's a blessing. But it's not good for heads of household who have this responsibility. So the whole responsibility, or the entire people are responsible for the death of the lamb, and the death of the lamb covers the sins of the whole congregation. Hasn't changed. And then you're like, that's how it works, Dickers. That's why Jesus can account for your sins. That's the rules that were set in place all the way at the beginning. Verse 7, And then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. Okay, what's a lintel, right? It's not a word we use. First of all, the two doorposts, this is important to know. Mazua, two means side posts. When we think of a door frame in America, 
we have a big square, right? Not so with big giant brick limestone and sandstone houses. Instead of that, they would put two posts on one side of the door that would be strong enough to carry the weight of this massive door, and then it would swing open or shut. So if you look at any for, like ancient housing for Egyptians or Jews, the way they built is they had a mezua or double posts on one side of the door that could handle that weight. The lintel, again, big stone and brick homes, the lintel was the maskoba, which was the upper post or the overhanging beam, and they call it overhanging beam because it went out over the sides of the door into the brick. And if you know anything about kind of like support structures, that's actually a really strong doorway where the brick, the weight of the brick won't cave in the door because the weight of the brick over here is actually helping this beam stay straight over the doorway. Zach's nodding his head because he understands this as an engineer. <laughs> so I want to make sure we all get what's going on here. You've got a big thick beam going up and a beam over the top that goes out and overstretches both the whole doorway. You've actually got a cross in every doorway. But they didn't call it a cross, they called it a lintel, right? So there's a double side post to support the door in first century homes, that's how that works. Then there's that post there. Even if you have two posts on either side, so even when Jews made more modern architecture, you still have two beams and the lintel should go out over both of those beams. And we still build some houses, you know, when we do artsy construction, we still do that kind of thing. And there are still some Jews that want their doors built that way, right? Either way you put it, this is an amazing image where we put the blood of the lamb. First of all, one image is the blood of the lamb goes right at the entry of your home. It's what you see as you come and go from your home all the time. Um, it is under the blood of the lamb that we all have to walk to gain entrance to that household or that home. It's also outside of our homes as a form of guardianship and protection. So the image of the blood of the lamb being our protection is outside of our homes so that things can't get into it. Um, I like the idea that the, the door represents the whole home. There's one entry, right? So this, this blood of the lamb covers your whole home uh, and the idea of the entry being the entirety thing. This is a sacred boundary and God actually honors this boundary throughout the Bible. The household is sacred and it's precious. And people that understand that have healthy homes. People that don't understand that, things tend to go wrong, right? So, and the best imagery for me, and I hope you know I was going here, they literally have a cross that has the blood of the lamb on it. So how do you miss this when you're a first century Jew and one of the disciples is telling you about this after this dude rose from the dead and they're saying, look at what this was doing. And they would have known about this as kids because they would have taken the blood of the lamb and sprinkled it there. The blood of the lamb is literally sprinkled throughout Jerusalem and taken outside of Jerusalem where Jesus is crucified. And the blood of the lamb is outside the city. And um, you just look at that and it's amazing. I'll get more on this in verse 22 when we meet next week. Um, but how they prepared it and ate it mattered. And I think we're kind of wrapping up with this tonight. How they prepared the lamb was also important. It's incredibly specific. And you think, why so specific? And it's not because it's a cookbook helping us do the best recipes ever. Because Danny's got that, right? <laughs> but this is the specific law dominates the first telling of Passover. Remember I told you there are going to be three different explanations? This first explanation really focuses on the lamb, the sacrifice, and how it's treated. The next two um, versions won't focus on the lamb at all. They'll focus on the bread. 
and it's going to be, it's like, whoa, what are they doing there? And again, I think when we went through this before, we just blasted through these chapters, but not so much right now. Then they shall eat the flesh on that night, verse 8. They shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, that they shall eat it. Do not eat it raw, yuck, nor boiled in water. Well, I mean, okay, but roasted in fire. It has to burn its head with its legs and its entrails. You shall let none of it remain until morning. And what remains of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. And thus you shall eat it. <laughs> I just like that it says that multiple times. With a belt on your waist, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, so you shall eat it in haste. Not only will you eat it, you're going to eat it fast. You're going to pile this stuff down like an eating contest, right? It is the Lord's Passover. Wow, it's like announced. So there should be trumpets that go with that last line. It is the Lord's Passover. And here we go. So we've got a title for it. You shall eat it. Um, the sacrifice that's going on is actually for us. And we're going to take that sacrifice in as a gift and be blessed by it. Mutton is delicious. You don't need to treat it. You don't need to do anything to it. You don't, it's delicious all by itself. And the gift of the lamb is a blessing to the family that accepts it. You see that? The family eats it together and you don't leave anything behind. You don't just take part of the lamb. You take all of the lamb. And you do it right now. You eat it fast. So it's kind of, you know how I am with the whole all in on the faith or all out. Like, don't call yourself a Christian if you're not all in. You're embarrassing me, right? If you're going to be a believer, you go all in. If you're going to accept the lamb as a sacrifice for your sin, you accept the whole thing, the good with the bad. And the amazing part is it's mutton. It's delicious. It's all good. It's all a blessing. It's nutritious, especially that the, because they've been eating unleavened bread for so many days. That stuff is horrible. They're going from crackers to delicious succulent meat that's right off the spit, right? It's warm. It's hot. It's delicious. It's good. The fat is dripping off of it. It's maybe not that healthy like that, but let none of it remain. It says you shall eat the flesh. So when it says let none of it remain, they're talking about the meat. So they're not eating the skin and they're not eating the bones. That's why it looks weird because you shall eat all of it, but all the stuff that's still left, you burn in the morning. Verse 10, that's because the stuff that's left are the bones and everything else. What's important here is that you're going to eat that and, and that's going to be that sort of thing. So you kill it, you drain the blood, you sprinkle the blood on your door, you cook it all night, smell that beautiful stuff coming in, and then as a family, you eat it as fast as you can, right? This is a holiday. This is my kind of holiday. You hang out with your family and you eat great food. And then later we're going to see why do we do all this? So you can tell your kids about what God's done. You study the word of God. It's not a magic formula. It's just that. So here's the other thing. Why do you got to do all this weird stuff? Why does all this matter? Stop asking. And I think that's one of the things. God doesn't give a huge explanation. You do it on faith. Think of the mockery their neighbors gave them. Why are you sprinkling blood on your doorway? Try that, Danny, in your apartment building. <laughs> See if I mean, why exactly are you doing this? And your answer is because God told me to. It's a symbol. And I'm trying to do this as a symbol. And a lot of religious traditions are things that do help you enter into conversation with people. Um, they don't know why they shouldn't put leaven in their bread. They, don't, they haven't been told that, right? Um, but we see throughout the Bible that leaven's going to be used as a symbol for sin. 
So you're supposed to be eating bread that doesn't have sin in it. You're eating unleavened bread. You've cleaned that leaven out of your household. In fact, Jewish families will play games where the little kids will run around their house looking for leaven, right? No leaven in this house. We're going to protect our house with the blood of the lamb, and we're going to get all the leaven out of our house. And we're going to take in the lamb, and we're going to take all of the lamb in. Whole, whole, can't say whole hog, whole lamb, right? Hebrews 11:28 says, Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. Why are they doing this? It's an act of faith. Would you, really, do you think the death is going to pass us over because we got blood on our doorframe? Yep, that's what I think is going to happen. Really, you think you're going to be saved from judgment because you believe on the name of Jesus Christ? Yep, that's what I think is going to happen. Because God's made promises, God's kept promises, he's introduced himself to the world, we know his power, and he's going to keep his promises. So if he says, i got to live according to the blood of Jesus Christ, okay, where do you want me to sprinkle it? Right? And luckily we don't have to decorate our doorposts because imagine the cleaning after a few years. So we don't have to do that anymore. But we'll get to that next week as to what's happening. In haste, chipwazen, I like the word. It doesn't even sound Hebrew. Chipazown, in haste. Which verse is that? You shall eat it in haste. Eleven. That word has every connotation that you think it would. It is a hurried flight, a full run with anxiousness. In other words, I used to do this in a swimming pool. I'd get in the swimming pool and I'd imagine a shark was behind me. And then I could swim really fast. That's Chippewausen, right? It's this feeling of something's behind you, run faster. Like you're going to be caught. And this image of taking the blood of the land, letting it protect your life, getting all the sin out of your life that you can, clearing the house out of the leaven, and then when you consume that lamb, you do it as much and as fast as you can. It reminds me of Paul saying that we're in a race. You run like you're in a race. You follow after the lamb with everything you've got. You eat that lamb with a hurried anxiousness as though Darth Vader is knocking on your door, right? You're not at home here. You keep your sandals on. Eat this thing like it's your last meal or like the Gestapo's knocking on your door. That's how you eat Passover, right? You eat it fast. And there's been periods in Jewish history, I use the Gestapo to bring up images, there's periods in Jewish history where this Passover was the real deal. And they have had to scatter all over the planet. And God has regathered them in Israel. And this tradition of the Jewish people, this eating fast. The other thing is, imagine what this does for little kids in a Jewish household right? Killing Fluffy is tough, but eating that meat and doing it fast, since when do we tell kids to eat as fast as they can, (laughs) right? All year they're being told by their Jewish mothers, slow down, eat properly, use your fork, not on Passover. Eat it. Ready? One, two, three. And the whole family's just (laughs) chopping that stuff down with anxiousness, with, with this hurriedness that's going on. So, It had to be something that for kids was totally fun and enjoyable, but for adults it should do something to your heart. You're supposed to eat it and get a little terror worked up. You're supposed to imagine there's a shark behind you. There's something chasing us in this world. There's an evil coming after us that we need to be tuned into forever. So that idea of not feeling at home goes right with the sandals, right? Why do, you, why do you keep your belt on your waist? Because that belt is for travel. It's where you keep your stuff. You're supposed to get dressed for trips. And in today's world, that's like pack your luggage, get all your stuff together, put it by the door, and chop that food down as fast as you can because you've got to be ready to leave right now. The Jewish people throughout the centuries never feel at home. 
unless they're in their holy land. Unless they're in God's kingdom, we should never feel at home. And God tells us we're not in his kingdom for a long time. That he's going to come, he's preparing a place for us, and he'll return and he'll take us home. And we're supposed to be ready like a bride getting stolen away in the night, which was a Hebrew tradition, right? The groom would come and steal the bride away. We're supposed to be, get re- to be ready in the twinkling of an eye to be stolen away to go home to be with God. I could die any time. I want to have that kind of heart. And once a year, the Jewish people still practice this. Have that kind of heart. I love the Lord. I want to go with him right now. I'm going to dress up, get my shoes on, pack my luggage for a trip I don't plan to actually take. But I'm going to, in my head, set up that imagination like, we're going to pack up and run, kids. We're going to get out of here. And think of how this practice served the Jewish people when they did have to run, right? Because they have. The Persians have come after them. The Egyptians are going to chase them down, right? And the, Jew- and the Germans went after them. And, well, pretty much all of Europe started doing it. And it's going to happen again. The Bible says they're going to be attacked again. So there's going to be seasons where this practice is actually training. It's like they're athletes getting ready to actually run when they have to. But we as believers, the same thing. It's an eternal symbol for what we should be as believers. We shouldn't be at home here. As comfortable as this couch is, this isn't my home. And I should be ready to pack up and leave whenever God calls me to, right? So this is the Lord's Passover. I just like that this part ends on that. That's why we're ending here tonight. And it's the Lord's Passover. This isn't for us as humans. This is for God to know his people. Are you with them or are you not with them? Because what's going to happen next is he's going to make that selection. And it's odd that the way he makes his selection is the people that have done these things that make no sense. None of this is rational. But they're doing it because God told them to, and they're following his guidance, which is exactly what he was doing with Moses 10 chapters ago. Can you just take a step if I ask you to take a step? Can you follow when I ask you to go somewhere? And if you can do that, you're my people. And I think it's wonderful. I'm going to give you one, um, one more thought. I love that all of this, and I hope you've gotten this throughout, I love that all of this is an image of Jesus. That this whole thing is supposed to prepare the Jewish people to recognize their Messiah when the resurrection happens. Not before, but afterwards. And it's amazing to see how many Jewish people actually do convert when they see this and have it explained to them. And they're like, wow. So that unleavened bread they're talking about, one of the interesting things too, and I'll bring this up again next week. You cook unleavened bread, but you also spear it so that it cooks properly. So you poke holes in it. You ever seen a saltine cracker? Those holes are there for cooking purposes. So that unleavened bread gets baked sinlessly and it's pierced, not broken. And it doesn't get broken until the the people eat it and have supper with it. In the same way, Jesus was pierced, but he was not broken. And most people that are crucified, you break their legs. That's how you do the final killing. But he never had his legs broken. He died before that. They pierced a spear through his side and the blood and water flowed. All of this is an image of Jesus. And it's something we should recognize too when we do this. God's going to explain Passover two more times. That's what we're doing next week. And you're like, okay, next week's kind of a repeat. It's totally not a repeat. These two more times have totally different focus, and there's a totally different kind of spin on it. And I think um, those different details are for different eras of human history. This Passover was to be kept until Jesus, the one we just read. But after this one, it's almost like the sacrifice has already been given. It's not even mentioned. All they talk about is the bread and the tradition of what's going to go forward. So... We see this as an image for what Jesus should look like, but Passover is an eternal covenant. It should go on forever, which should make us ask, well, how come we don't practice Passover as Christians? And when we read the next two descriptions, we'll be like, wait, that sounds just like communion. 
and we'll see that we actually do practice Passover. We just call it communion, and we do it a lot more often because we love it. Um, that said, I think one really cool idea would be to try to eat a meal as fast as we could, <laughs> to try to just have that experience of like chopping it down. But it would be really messy, and you don't clean it up because you just leave right afterwards, right? Sandals are on, belts on, so the table can stay messy. Um, but anyways, so I don't go know. To a I don't know. Is what you're saying? Yeah. <laughs> and the waiter will be like, "What are you people doing?" He's like, "Do you want to eat with us? This is Passover." Um, let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we just thank you for your holy word. Lord, we thank you that things that would have, for thousands of years, looked like they weren't right to the Jews in the wording, is perfectly worded. Uh, that you have the tenses right. You have the plural and singular right. You have every single word in the right place to help us see Jesus. If we think of Jesus, it reads correctly and accurately. Um, Lord, help us to always have eyes to see, to not be in darkness uh, because of our sin. Lord, to not be blinded by it. Lord, I I pray that everybody in this room will be blessed this week. Uh, Lord, show us your blessing and your anointing. Lord, thank you for caring for us. Thank you that it's not about money that you've never asked for our money, you've just asked for our faithfulness. Thank you, Lord, that it's not about our strength and our actions and our works, that you've asked for our faith, for us to just obey your word. And Lord, it's always been about loving you and caring about you and believing that you are who you say you are. Um, Lord, help us to not lose sight of that. Man, everything in our world wants us to not pay attention to you, wants to distract us, to um, minimize to put our faith to the side. But Lord, may we not do that. May we eat the whole lamb of God and take responsibility for our part in killing your son. Um, Lord, help us to not escape that guilt because that guilt is truth. Uh, We have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. Lord, we lean on you for everything. Lord, help us to be ready to go at a moment's notice. Uh, Help us to just never be caught doing something, Lord, that isn't in service to you. Uh, that we can be honoring you with our lives, with our gracefulness, with our love for other people. Lord, I thank you that you had provisions for people that didn't have enough, that didn't have a lamb or didn't have a big enough house, uh, that you care even for the poor, that with you it's not about rich and poor, it's not about kings and servants, Lord, it's about do you honor God or don't you? And under that question, you can be a king that... uh, has his firstborn son die, or you can be a servant, Lord, that's saved and snatched from the jaws of death. And Lord, we just celebrate your Passover. We are so thankful, Lord, that you saved the Jewish people. You brought them out of Egypt uh, so they could be a model for the world, so we could see that your hand is in history, because we just have to look at the Middle East and see that they're there. Um, Lord, that you've taken this ancient people and they're still with us today. Uh, No other people's been targeted for extinction like they have, Lord, but Um, Of all the names of the ancient nations of the world, Lord, we only see Egypt and Israel, uh, and you've left them there as a model that that we know that they're there. Um, Lord, thank you for the gift. Thank you for this fellowship. I just thank you for the brothers and sisters in Christ and the people that want to hear the word, Lord. We just thank you for the people here, um, and we just uh, pray and ask for you, Lord, to fill us with your Holy Spirit this week. Give us great joy to tell people about our faith. Uh, not a political stance, Lord, and not a, uh, a, a an argument or a debate, but just an expression of our joy for how awesome you are and how cool your word is. 
Um, and Lord, may that just be our, our voice and the people that know us just see us as weird Jesus people. Um, just like they saw the, the, the Israelites as weird people that put lamb's blood on their door. Uh, Lord, we just want to walk around where people know that we love you um, and what a gift that is. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.